drive time, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. And welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Today is Spy Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. The Feast of St. Vincent Ferrer. I had to do a little bit of a longer Saint of the Day today because he's one of my favorites. He was a Dominican friar born in Valencia, Spain in 1350. At a young age, he showed a strong devotion to God and joined the Dominican order, where he later became renowned preacher and missionary. He traveled across Europe, preaching the gospel and converting thousands of people. And one of his most famous miracles occurred in 1411 when he was preaching to the city of Toledo, Spain. A group of Jews had challenged him to prove that Christianity was a true religion, and Vincent agreed to do so in front of a large crowd. As he spoke, a heavenly light shone down upon him, and the Jews fell to their knees and converted to Christianity. Another notable miracle happened in 1413 when he was at the bedside of a dying woman who had been bedridden for 12 years. As he prayed over her, she suddenly got up and started walking, completely healed. Vincent was also known for his miraculous abilities to raise people to life. He was a prolific writer, a composer of hymns, and he taught about the end times and the Antichrist. And you can actually go and read his sermon. Just look him up and you can find his sermons online. Along with St. Thomas Aquinas, he is credited with being one of the dykes that held back the intellectual and moral corruption of his era. He died in 1419 at the age of 62. St. Vincent Ferrer pray for us and good morning to you i hope you're having a blessed holy week i hope you're not too happy i hope you have wept a couple times already uh, you're reading the passion yesterday i know it you pulled up the passion narrative of mark yesterday and you were reading through it and you shed a couple tears i can i can already see it happening and today the passion narrative is from luke so make sure if you have a chance to pull up the Gospel of Luke and read chapters 22 and 24, since uh, that is the passion narrative. Did I say 24? 22 and 23. And read that passage today, because that is the message that we have to uh, to read today. That would be the message we want to send out to everyone. So those are the topics that we have today. It is Spy Wednesday, our Lord being betrayed by Judas. We celebrate that horrible, horrible day today. I don't know if celebrate is the right word. We commemorate, maybe the better word, commemorate. I think that's what we use. We'll commemorate the fact that on this day, we have this idea, this uh, principle that, that Judas was, Satan entered into Judas and he went to his enemies, the enemies of Christ, and betrayed our Lord. Those are the things we're talking about today. At 15 past the hour, we're going to be talking about why are leftists so depressed? A new Pew Research study came out saying that leftists are depressed. Why is that? We're going to talk about that at 15 past the hour. At 30 past the hour, we're going to be talking to Father Andrew Dalton about the Shroud of Turin. A very interesting conversation. A good thing to meditate upon, especially leading up to the holy season of the Triduum. And I think that uh, meditating upon this will be a good benefit to all of us. So this is definitely going to be something we're going to be talking about coming up. Uh, good morning to you, Tito Edwards. Good morning, Adrian. How are you doing? I'm doing great. 
Wow, what a morning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, then uh, let's see. Today, let's begin in prayer. Uh, whatever it is that you have on your plate, whatever it is that you would like us to pray for, we're going to be praying for those intentions, for your friends, your family, your benefactors, and all those that we promise to pray for. All these things we are going to be offering up and for and to the Holy Ghost, because April is, in fact, the month of the Holy Ghost. So we're going to be saying the Vini Sancti Spiritus. We're also going to be praying for my friend, Dr. Anthony Stein. His son, Aiden, was born healthy. Praise be to God. And my friend, Josh Patterson's son, James, his son was born healthy and for the recovery of their wives. And everybody who's been giving birth, we have tons of friends and family, and I'm sure you know people who are having, who just recently had kids, or maybe you yourself are about to be delivering or have delivered. And if that's the case, then we're going to be offering this prayer for you as well. So let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Oremus, O God, who taught the heart to the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now your headline news with Tito Edwards. Good morning. You are listening to the Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. Today is Wednesday, April 5th, and these are your headlines. Catholic Culture and the College Fix reports that with major fundraising effort, Catholic College works to cut ties with an intrusive federal aid. Federal policies tied to student financial aid have risen to the level of serious moral violations of freedom of conscience of our community, said Philip Brock, Vice President of College... College Relations at Belmont Abbey College in North Carolina. Hurrah for Belmont. CatholicCulture.org reports Ukrainian Catholic leader blasts the alliance between President Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church. Today we see what a great disaster the Russian occupier has brought to the Ukrainian land precisely because the throne and the altar have merged into an ugly two-headed eagle that takes away life and freedom. CatholicCulture.org reports the Dicastery of Laity, Family, and Life has launched Synact Family, a members-only social media platform. Only one representative per Episcopal Conference, Movement Association, and University Institute can access the platform. Gabriel Gambino, the Dicastery's undersecretary, wrote in an article published by La Servatore Romano. And finally, OSV News reports the Florida Senate advances a six-week abortion ban with increased pregnancy center funds backed by Governor DeSantis. This Senate bill, the Heartbeat Protection Act, would prohibit most abortions in the state with exceptions for rape and mortality risk with the pregnancy. The bill also would make exception for cases of a diagnosis of a fetal fatal anomaly until the third trimester. If signed into law... The new bill would only go into effect if the state's current 15-week ban is upheld amid an ongoing legal challenge before the Florida Supreme Court. These were your headlines this morning. May God bless you all. Thank you, Tito, for keeping us up to date. And the gospel for today is Luke chapter 22 and 23. So we're going to go through just a couple sections from this passage rather than 
read the entirety of the two chapters, just because that would just be too, too long. And verse 24, he says here, And there was also a strife amongst them, which of, which of them should seem to be the greater. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord over it, lord over them. And they that have power over them are called benefits, but you not so. But he that is the greater among you, let him become as the younger. And he that is the leader, as he that serveth. For which is greater, he that sitteth at table, or he that serveth? Is it not that he that sitteth at the table? But I am in the midst of you, as he that serveth. Now at this solemn moment, how can the apostles contend about which of them should be the greatest? St. Bede remarks that while the cause is unknown, it may have been a holy strife in which each sought to give precedence to another. Or it may be that the apostles were struck to see Christ give a special honor to Judas, as St. John tells us, and wondered whether Judas occupied a higher place among them than they had supposed. What is wrong with the king of the Gentiles being called benefit? Such praise suggests that the realms are their own possessions and that the service they render to their subjects are supergregatory, like the almsgiving of a benefactor rather than acts to be done from justice. Now, this is important to note, especially the point here about Judas, because our Lord gave honor and respect to Judas despite the fact that Judas, he knew Judas was going to betray him. And that this strife, St. Bede contends that this possibly was why they were contending, because they were talking, saying, why, why is our Lord and our Lady treating Judas so well? They're treating him better than he treats the rest of us. What's up with that? Now here in verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And thou, being once converted, confirm thy brethren, whom say to him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he, and he said, I say to thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day till thou thrice deniest that thou knowest me. And he said to them. Now here, uh, Father Thomas Crean comments, in addressing St. Peter as Simon, using, so to speak, his personal rather than his papal name, Jesus indicates directly that his prayer was made for St. Peter personally. It is St. Peter's own faith that, faith that will fail not during the Passion, even when his confession of it fails. But nothing is said of his personal faith of his successors. Yet an allusion is made of these successors in that St. Peter is given the office to confirm his brethren, an office that will necessarily have to be exercised in the later ages too. Hence, Christ indirectly indicates that in later ages too, hence he indicates that Peter's successors will receive an unerring power to define matters of faith. In predicting that denial, the Lord calls him Peter, as if to show him that he will not lose this office on account of his sin. Very, very interesting to note. Now, one other note that I want to make, and I want to talk about the our Lord telling him not to take anything with them. But first, I want to run out of time. I want to read this passage here from verse 47 to 53. And he was yet speaking, behold, a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near to Jesus for to kiss him. 
And Jesus said to him, Judas, dost thou betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And they that were about him, seeing what would follow, said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answering said, Suffer ye thus far. And when he had touched his ear, he healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the magistrates of the temple and the ancients that were come unto him, And ye come out, as it were, against a thief with swords and clubs. When I was daily with you in the temple, you did not stretch forth your hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness." Now here, why does St. Luke say that he was called Judas? One might think, oh, he said called Judas because, you know, that's just the way people in the Bible talk. But no, actually, usually, and whenever people refer to other people, they don't say he who was called. They just say it was Judas or that was Jesus or that was Peter or that was Mary. They don't say, oh, that was called Peter or he that was called James. It was his name. And so they mention it. So why do you think? That he says, he that was called Judas. Well, Father uh, Thomas Crean proposes that they came up with the multitude rather than simply Judas, perhaps because though he still bears the name, the man himself has, as it were, disappeared, having surrendered himself up to the power of the enemy. It is the general position that these people have been possessed They've been possessed by the devil, that Judas was possessed, that Satan had him. Now, Christ here does not give permission to the apostles to strike with the sword, principally because he does not wish to impede the redemption, but also because it was unfitting that they, as the priests of the new covenant, should shed blood. And because as far as the laws of the land were concerned, they were only private individuals. He points out the irrationality of those who have come against him with swords and clubs and at night when they could have found him without any special preparation during the day. He also offers a partial extenuation of their sins. They are under the influence of the power of darkness, the devil, to whom his father has allowed an hour, a brief opportunity to act. So we'll end there and conclude that here our Lord is telling us that Judas was possessed and that those who came with him to take our Lord into prison were also in fact under the influence of the devil. And as Fulton Sheen likes to echo over and over again, here we recognize that evil has its hour, but God will have his day. That's something to meditate upon today, something to keep in mind. And we'll be right back with more after this. Hey, Donnie, what are the four Gospels in the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And who baptized Jesus? St. John the Baptist. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. 
Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question. Should pastors and churches place expectations and obligations on the congregation? Your average non-Catholic evangelical would say no, maybe even no way. It might be said, we do not need written order, discipline, or expectations. Those should derive from personal desire and from the Holy Spirit, not from a church. Or, each Christian's conscience should be sufficient for correction and discipline. Or, the Holy Spirit will personally lead each believer as to what church or to attend and certainly how often they should go. So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Natural law says human society cannot be well-ordered nor prosperous unless it has legitimate authority to preserve its own institutions, the Bible. Secondly, the Bible, which says in multiple places such as Hebrews 13, 17, obey them that have the rule over you. And thirdly, the Catholic Church says when we are properly ordered, we will be capable of resisting conformity to the contemporary demands of unhealthy individualism. So obligations, much obliged. Welcome back to the Catholic Drive Time Show. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. You know, I was wondering, I was looking at this article from the New York Times, actually, and the New York Times was reporting on how, it's kind of funny, the the title of the article is kind of misleading, as you would expect it to be from the New York Times. It says, How the Right Turned Radical and the Left Became Depressed. Now, the article was actually about this Pew Research study that just came out that was the, I think it was, they were taken a year ago, but it's now coming out now, as most things take a little while to, to hit the news. And in this Pew Research study, it talks, it was all about how people are feeling more and less, more or less depressed in our current time. I don't know how they spun that to say that the right is becoming more radical, but nonetheless, here we are. Here it says 18 to 29-year-olds, 40, 45.9% of liberals said that they had received such a diagnosis of depression compared to 20.1% of conservatives. That's between the ages of 18 and 29. More than half of liberal women and roughly a third of liberal men reported that a health care provider had told them they had a mental health condition compared with about a fifth of conservative women and about a seventh of conservative men, according to analysis of a Pew Research study. Now, the reason why I think this is interesting is because many people have uh, made comments on this and said, okay, well, what's the cause of this? And some people will, are saying, oh, well, it's because the conservatives are, are more, uh, just don't go see health professionals. Or more, the conservatives are the people who tend to try to bottle it all up. And liberals are more honest with themselves. That's kind of a, the idea here. But this is not the case. The reality of it is, in fact, exactly what I just said. Reality. The left refuses to accept reality, whereas the right tends to, I say tends to, the right tends to accept and affirm reality. Now, the left is always calling the right anti-science, but the left actually is anti-science. Let me give you just three examples, and um, probably in ascending order, maybe maybe ascending order that could be debatable one is what's called fat phobia people are saying oh just because you shouldn't tell people to lose weight you shouldn't tell them that they're fat if someone is is too big you shouldn't try to shame someone for being overweight why because that's mean because you're being fat phobic it's you can be just as healthy and be severely overweight as someone who's not there's nothing inherently wrong with that. 
this is a false idea. In fact, this is an anti-science position because it's a denial of reality. People who are severely overweight or overweight at all, but severely overweight especially, are at higher risk of diabetes, of heart failure, of heart attacks, of various, various different illnesses. They also have um, problems with their hormones, which causes uh, different kind of uh, influxes and, and fluctuations in emotions. All these different things are geared towards the lack of flourishing of the human person. And so, of course, you shouldn't be hate people who are fat. And, of course, you shouldn't hate people when just because they're overweight. Of course. That's not what people are saying. They're saying being fat is not healthy. Therefore, you should lose weight. That's all they're saying. And But the left comes out and says, no, no, no. We have to celebrate being fat. We have to say that it is good to be fat. And that if you say otherwise, and if you try, tell, try to tell people and help people lose weight, you are fat phobic. It actually made me think about a friend of mine who actually hired a, a personal trainer as a engagement gift for a friend of mine who was uh, overweight. And so he said, hey, I'm going to hire a personal trainer as an engagement gift for you. So that way you can lose weight for your wedding. And I was like, that's a that's a great that's a great and very charitable thing to do. But if someone we were all leftists, me and my friends, it would have been an uproar. How dare you say that he needs to lose weight for his wedding? How dare you say that it would be better for you to, for him to lose weight? Why on earth would you hire a personal trainer? Are you saying that being fat is unhealthy? Uh, the other thing, here's a second thing. Transgender ideology. They are anti-science there. They think that men can become women. They think that if you chop off personal body parts, is actually healthy for you. That the... the that all these things can just happen, that men are women and women are men. This is a anti-science position. Nobody with real science can understand and recognize this to be reality. The third thing here is abortion. They say that a child in the womb is not a baby. Okay, then what is it? What is the child in the womb? They say, oh, it's a fetus. Well, the word fetus literally means offspring. So what is it an offspring of? Word fetus means offspring. So it's an offspring of a dog, of a cat, of a whale. What is it an offspring of? It's an offspring of a human. So it's a human baby. That's what it literally means. So it's an anti-science position to say, oh, the baby in the womb is not, in fact, a baby. This is a anti-science. And why does this matter? This matters because ultimately this is a denial of reality and this causes depression it causes in what is uh, often referred to as an existential dread where you kind of look out in the world and you have this epistemic uncertainty you have a no no recognition of will of what is real and what is not you have no recognition of do you know anything at all and whenever you have this there becomes an anxiety within you or a dread within you because you're, you cannot determine A from B. You completely lose your mind. And whenever this happens, you are falling into depression. This is what happens. Now, why is it that the conservatives don't fall into this? Well, the problem here is actually that this all stems from logic. This all stems from logic, and this is not taught to kids anymore. So uh, conservative or otherwise, the reason why they're... Because you might say, well... Conservatives still have a 
a lot of people who are depressed, 20% of conservatives are depressed. That's a big number. 20% is a big number, especially, I mean, not in comparison to 45.9% of liberals. It's more than double, but it's still fairly large. Why is that? Well, because while conservatives tend to have a more, have a better recognition of reality, they don't know why. They just have, they have more of common sense where they recognize something, they look at something like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that's probably true. But they don't actually know why. They don't have this, these ideas of logic in their minds. So there are many things where people who are just, they might lean conservative, but they are more just nice. They're nice people. And they don't try to actually think these things through to logical conclusions. This is why we have seen so much of conservatives as well as so high. Now, of this, these numbers, how many of these are religious, I'd like to know. The Pew Research Study didn't mention that. Because whenever we go into religion, I'm going to guess, I'm going to make a venture and say that when it comes to religion, there's going to be even uh, lower numbers. So if you are a conservative who is also highly religious, I'm going to guess that number falls even further. Now, why would this be a case? Because religion is a recognition of reality. Now, people might say, no, religion is all about uh, blind faith. No, religion is not about blind faith. Religion is about rationality. Because our religion, at least, at least if you're part of the Catholic religion, is a rational and reasonable faith. It's not something that is, that is worthy of mockery, unlike some other things, other positions. Now, there are three axioms of logic that are something that people should know. And they used to be taught to everyone. This logic was taught to elementary school kids, to middle school kids, to high school kids, and it tended not to be taught in college because you already should know it. And there are three axioms. It's called the law of identity, the law of um, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of the excluded middle. Those are the three laws. Let me repeat that: law of identity, law of non-contradiction, and the law of the excluded middle. Now, these they're called axioms. What what that means is something that is a basis of all your position that come after it. So it's something that you're just presumed to be true, something that does not need to be proven. Now, the law of identity, you're going to say, well, this is a kind of a dumb idea. Well, the law of identity states that something is what it is. That's literally what it means. So when someone says it is what it is, they're talking about, they're literally saying the law of identity is true. They're, they're expressing the fact that the law of identity is true. Now, you might say, well, duh, of course, what is, is. However, this may seem like a principle. And in fact, it's kind of funny. Some of the modernist philosophers like David Hume, he, they actually came out and they were like, that's kind of dumb. This should not be one of the uh, principles. This should not be an axiom. Everybody just knows that to be true. And this, we live today and we look around and people do not recognize that what is, is. Because instead of conforming the mind to reality... We desire to conform reality to our mind. And so you may look at yourself and say and recognize, I am a man. I look at myself. I can determine that I am what I am. I am a man. But if someone denies the law of identity, they say, I can be whatever I want to be. It doesn't matter if I am a man because I identify as a dog, a cat, a woman, whatever it is that you want. And so they deny the law of identity. This is a destruction of the mind. And so when we have a destruction of the mind, what do you get? Mental illness. This is where mental illness comes from. 
Now, the law of non-contradiction, the second one, and this one is something that we should know definitely because this is being uh, violated constantly. So the statement is that something cannot be both true and false at the same time. Uh, it's often articulated. It was articulated by Aristotle because this comes back all the way to before Christ. Now, Aristotle said, one cannot say of something that it is and that it is not in the same respect and at the same time. What does this mean? This means that if someone is A, then he cannot also be not A. And it's very, very simple. It's very, very straightforward. So, for instance, if you said all cats are mammals, you cannot be the same that if you said some cats are not mammals. Now, where do we see this error the most amount of times? We see this error most amount of times whenever we talk about morality. Someone will say, what's true for me is not true for you. That morality is relative. This is impossible because that violates the law of non-contradiction. How can something be true for me but not true for you? Either it's true or it's not. It cannot both be true and false at the same time. So this principle is violated, and this breaks the mind of people who are on the left because it's part of their principle that these things are, that are not true and true at the same time. And so this causes mental illness. It causes people to become depressed. Now, the last thing is a law of excluded middle, which we won't have too much time to discuss, but the law of excluded middle states that every statement must be either true or false, meaning there is no middle ground. Now, when we talk about like political things, we see this all the time. Either we can trans the kids or we can't trans the kids. There is no middle ground. Now, some people would say, oh, well, let's just wait till they're older. No, no, you can't wait till they're older. Or how about the abortion issue? And they say, oh, well, let's find the middle ground. Instead of killing babies for all nine months of pregnancy, we're only going to kill them for the first three months. No, either killing a baby is wrong or it's not wrong. And the amount of months that it takes for it to develop does not matter. So the law of excluded middle. These are the three laws of thinking, the laws of thought, the laws of logic that have been lost. So maybe it'd be worth doing a deep dive into all these things in a future date. But that's going to do it. When we come back, the Shroud of Turin and more after this. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. How much havoc would be caused at your church if your pastor brought a big statue of St. Peter or St. Paul and placed them in the sanctuary? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, history's on the side of the Catholic Church. Christian art in many forms dates way back to about 120 A.D. And so do those various Christian symbols which we still see today. You know, a dove, a fish, a lamb. Why are those okay? Secondly, the Bible, Exodus, Numbers, and Ezekiel. All these books show God telling Moses, David, or Ezekiel to carve out images of angels that were used in worship. And, and thirdly, a tough comeback, especially for my guy friends. Does Cooperstown, Canton, or Cleveland mean anything to you? Yep, the Hall of Fame locations filled with statues, jerseys, bats, and balls. Memorabilia is a $37 billion industry, but you say, don't bring a statue into my church. Well, how many of you guys have admired one of those bronze statues of an athlete? I'd rather stare at St. Peter's, Paul, and Mary in my church, and I'm not talking about the old folk band. 
Listen to The Spirit World with Debbie Giorgiani and Adam Bly. Demonic activity appears to be on the rise. I'm Debbie Giorgiani, and I invite you to join Adam Bly and me this weekend for The Spirit World. On The Spirit World, we offer a Catholic perspective on angels, demons, and how the spiritual and physical worlds interact. Saturdays at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Guadalupe Radio Network and other EWTN radio affiliates. Visit grnonline.com slash spiritworld. Welcome back to the Catholic Drive Time Show. Today is Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, in the year of our Lord. And these are your headlines for this morning. Zenner reports in a settlement of a lawsuit that Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys filed on behalf of David Benham and members of two pro-life organizations who are arrested for engaging in a peaceful prayer and sidewalk counseling outside an abortion facility in Mecklenburg County. Officials have conceded that the First Amendment protects the pro-life citizens of public advocacy. CatholicCulture.org in La Vie, out of France, reports one of Father Rutnick's victims breaks her silence. In this French-language interview, a 47-year-old religious sister, now a hermitess, discusses the sexual abuse she suffered from Father Marco Rupnik. The sister studied at Father Rupnik's Aletti Center in Rome between 2010 and 2014. If you can read French, that's an outstanding article to read in La Vie. Catholic News Agency reports a Chinese bishop was installed yesterday as a bishop of Shanghai without the Vatican's approval, according to AsiaNews.it. The report says Bishop Joseph Shenbin of Haimen was appointed to lead the Diocese of Shanghai by the Council of Chinese Bishops. In other words, the Patriotic Church, a state-sanctioned bishops' conference. Shenbin is also the head of the Council of Chinese Bishops. Vatican spokesman Matteo Bruni said Tuesday, which was yesterday, that the Holy See has been informed a few days ago of the decision of the Chinese authorities to transfer Shenbin from Haimen to Shanghai and learn from media of the installation this morning. And finally, CatholicCulture.org and The Pillar reports two Nigerian women who were former captives of the jihadist terrorist organization Boko Haram met with Pope Francis last month and described the meeting as the best day of their lives. Quote, unquote, I have forgiven them, said the two victims. I am Tito Edwards, and these were today's headlines through a Catholic lens. Thank you, Tito, for keeping us up to date. And we're going to be going into a conversation talking about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, but before I do, I want to share a little bit of good news I saw just a second ago. Um, here in Idaho, not too far. Well, I guess it is pretty far. It's all the way in the other side from, from Houston, Texas. That's probably a two-day drive. But uh, the state of Idaho banned child transition surgeries and their state. So praise be to God. It's very good to hear uh, some good news today. I am happy to be able to say that Idaho is protecting kids. That makes 10 states out of 50. That means uh, 40 more to go to protect children. Praise be to God. Let's keep that intention in our prayers. Uh, but joining us right now is Father Andrew Dalton. He is a professor of theology at the Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolor. Ap- Apostolorum in Rome. There we go. He is an expert in biblical Greek and Hebrew and authored a book on Matthew's paradigm. Father Dalton is also a board member of Athonia, an international center of investigation on the Shroud of Turin, and has lectured on the Shroud and the sufferings of Christ around the world. Good morning to you, uh, Father Dalton. 
Good morning. Hey, thanks for having me. Ah, praise be to God. And I'm glad you're here. You know, the Strat of Turin is one of those things that gets people very, very excited or very, very upset because I've encountered so many people who used to be big believers in the Shroud, and then one day they were like, I was deceived. It turns out it was fake this whole time, and now they're completely turned off from the Shroud. So I want to have a discussion about that. But before we do, let's talk about the history of the Shroud, how we got to the current date of being able to get these modern tests on what's going on with the Shroud. So for people who are not aware, what's the history of the Shroud? Right. So the route towards those modern tests actually began in 1898. I know people often want to start way back in the beginning in the times of of Christ, but I I want to throw you a curveball there a little bit and say, I think we should start with what's most knowable, what's easiest for everyone to agree upon. And what everybody agrees upon is that the Shroud has these three very unique characteristics. And I want to tell you how they came to be known. The first of which is in 1898 when the first photograph of the Shroud was taken by a certain Secundo Pia. And he saw the photo negative of the Shroud. This was a watershed for our time. It's really when Shroud science was born because when it was first observed, that the shroud bears the image of a man that is anatomically perfect and the image acts as a photo negative unlike any other burial cloth known to man that caught the attention of some scientists some very even secular scientists a certain yves delage in paris would write a paper for the academy de science and the conclusion of this paper is that the man of the shroud is jesus of nazareth The man wasn't making any faith claims. Again, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer. But he saw that the pathologies that this man suffered correspond to what we know about of of Jesus of Nazareth, who is crowned, scourged, crucified, pierced in the side. These elements we see on the shroud, and they're represented with perfection, anatomically speaking. But what a conundrum. How is it that we have a photographic effect? The The shroud acts like a photographic photographic negative, what, 19 centuries before the invention of photography? And so this is why it is so mind-boggling. But that was in 1898. Let me give you another date. Imagine it's 1976 now, and we have more technology than ancient cameras. Uh, A certain Eric Jumper and John Jackson of the United States Air Force Academy observe for the first time using the VP8 image analyzer that the shroud encodes three-dimensional information. That is to say, nowadays we can build a, a statue of the man's body, but the mathematical information from which that statue is built is contained in a 2D cloth. This catches the attention of the highest powered laboratories across America. They assemble and petition the Savoy family in Italy And this is where we have a full battery of exams, everything under the sun, physics, chemistry, biology, x-ray, infrared, pollen samples, sticky shape samples, you name it, they're testing it then and there. That was called the Shroud of Turin Research Project. To this date, it remains the really mecca of all scientific data on the Shroud. But again, the three details, the three characteristics that led to that 
were the discovery of A, anatomical perfection, B, acting as a photographic negative, and C, the fact that this image contains 3D information despite the fact that it's recorded on a two-dimensional cloth. So again, the only question they're going to answer, they, they want to answer is, what in the world made this image, right? If it's so unique, and if it's the most studied archaeological object in the history of the world, you would think by now we could explain it. We could explain its genesis, and yet it remains a puzzle. This is why the shroud catches our attention. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the claim that it's from our Lord himself, a relic of our Lord, is, is quite quite a massive claim. And so many people, like I had mentioned, were are very disturbed by the idea that uh, the shroud was actually a fake, that it was uh, somehow fake. But you, the things that you've just presented, it says, OK, well, what else explains what it is? And that kind of bypasses the claim. But for people who are unaware, what is why what happened that made people think that the shroud was fake? Yeah, so in 1988, um, this is now 10 years after the Shroud of Turin Research Project, they do yet another test, and this was to date the Shroud. And the, the golden standard for testing organic material is radiocarbon dating. And this is when you burn a portion of the, of, of the cloth and you carbonize it, you count its uh, C14, you see how that compares to the C12, and you see, well, when they destroyed the flax linen to make the linen itself. Well, the results were this. It, it dates from 1260 to 1390. Oh, and we're 95% sure that this is the correct answer to the question. Well, lo and behold, here we are 30 plus years later. And do you know the very same publication out of Oxford, the one that originally said we've disproven the authenticity of the shroud? Well, they now come back to recant that very conclusion. That is to say, it's a matter of mainstream science. It's not even a, a matter of debate. If any scientist who points, any anyone today, who would point to 1988 and say, we definitively, definitively disproved the shroud, we know it to be medieval. They simply are not up on the literature. According to a Freedom of Information Act in 2017, a certain researcher by the name of Kristen Casabianca compelled by law the laboratories to release their raw data, and they showed that to be heterogeneous. It simply is, is not a definitive case. It's an open question. We would need to do further testing to get a definitive dating on the shroud. Amen. It seems very, very clear that now looking at what we know today versus what we knew then, that it's very, very clear that the shroud being a medieval forgery has been utterly and completely debunked. And people who will try to bring that up, especially people, there are many people who are just misinformed and are not aware, especially when you're talking to faithful Catholics who are like, well, you know, I don't think we should even refer to the shroud because it's probably medieval forgery. Well, just inform them about what's going on. But oftentimes the from the anti-Catholics, from people who are against the faith and against theism, they will try to bring this up and just be aware and let them know that they are being anti-science if they affirm that this carbon dating was, in fact, a disproving of the shroud. And just let them know, hey, hey, I just don't want you to be anti-science, okay? Uh, we're pro-science here, so we don't want people to just make these wild claims and say it's a medieval forgery. But when we come back, we're going to discuss a little bit more about the science behind the shroud, but then, and more importantly, how can we use the shroud as a means of meditation for this Holy Week in Triduum? 
We'll be right back. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. According to the American court system, can a jury of 12 citizens who are of varying moral beliefs, backgrounds, and persuasions objectively deem a person not guilty who actually committed the crime? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, church law. In the same manner, the Apostolic College, who are the unique inheritors of the Catholic Church authority, were also granted that same power. Secondly, certain limitations. The court of 12, called a jury, can only grant acquittal or guilt. The Apostolic College, proceeding from the Twelve Apostles, can declare a third position, that being innocence, different from acquittal. And thirdly, a tough comeback. The jury of twelve wields frightening power that changes lives. The church also wields magnificent power that changes guilt into forgiveness and pardon. Is your Bible church obedient to James chapter 5, which says, Call for the elders of the church, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So if you ask your pastor to provide weekly opportunities to confess sins, will he? Hey, Donnie, what do we say when we make the sign of the cross? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Did Mama teach you that? As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Welcome back to the Catholic Drive Time Show. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Praise be to God. It's so good to be here with you today. Now, in the last segment, we were talking about the science behind the Shroud of Turin and how the Shroud of Turin is easily can be shown that it, the carbon dating situation was, in fact, not a disproving of the science that it was a that it was miraculous. It does not disprove it. Correct. Now, we cannot say that this proves that it was, in fact, miraculous, but it certainly does. We know for a fact that it was not disproven by the carbon-14 dating. The other thing that we talked about was the fact that it is utterly and completely unique and that nothing else can possibly explain these circumstances. And if someone can, then let's let's go ahead and try to do that. And Father Andrew Dalton is joining us to discuss. Father Dalton, you know, the this topic, one thing that I often hear is how the Shroud of Turin matches up with things like the Shroud of Veronica, like the Divine Mercy image, like the um and it's similar in in makeup as the image of Our Lady Guadalupe. We don't want to make claims that are that are too great that people would find absurd. So are the, do those claims have any veracity to them? Well, I think we would need to do more science on some of those other cloths. I know it's often been noticed that um, the Shroud of Turin bears some qualities uh, in similar qualities as the Tilma Guadalupe, for example, that you say. But, you know, the Shroud has been exposed to hundreds of thousands of hours of scientific testing. And that is not the case with some of these other cloths. Now, I, I do think that one that comes close to that, that as far as bearing interesting information in, um, let's say, synthesis or in a symbiosis, you might say, with the shroud is the sudarium. The sudarium is the, the cloth that was used to um, absorb the blood that was that came out of the nose and mouth on the, onto, and this bearded, this image is, appears we can superimpose the blood stains from the head, um, from the shroud of, of Turin, 
and the Sudarium of Oviedo and see that they covered one and the same body. So that's an example of, of something that I do think is uh, has borne fruit in a scientific way. But these other these other images have just not been. I want to be cautious there because sometimes when we make claims that are a little, um, if there's overstatement, if there's any exaggeration, you can you can expect pushback. And to be fair, rightfully so. So I'm awaiting scientific data before I make any claims about those other those other clause. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that's a completely reasonable position, and I think that. I, that's kind of my position when people tell me those kind of things. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe it's possible, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I want to go that far just yet, but I don't want to deny it. I don't want to crush people's um, pieties, um, but at the same time, I don't want to try to make a claim that could be easily ridiculed, um, which, right. you know, the word ridiculed literally means like comes from like to laugh at, to, to, be, to be laughed at. And we don't want to make the faith uh, up to something that people would laugh at. Uh, before we go into kind of a more spiritual aspect of this, you mentioned that the three elements that are just so uh, unique to the shroud that are the that make it utterly unreplicable. Uh, I can't even say words. Replicable. There you yeah. go. Replicable. Yep. There you go. I there can. I, I could talk. I could talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what are some examples that people have attempted to explain it as, right. and how have those been proven not to be true? Yeah, great question. Well, there were like four main theories that were on the table in 1978. And one, of course, was that it was a painting. Um, the second was that it was a rubbing or a scorch, you know, like when you heat up a statue and then, you know, singe a cloth by placing it on top of that hot statue. Um, and then finally, some sort of camera oscura, some sort of medieval photography. Um, the problem was that there was no it's not a painting because there's no paint, no pigment, no varnish, no dye, no ink, no directionality, no brush strokes, no, nothing that shows coloration was applied to the cloth or absorbed by the cloth. Each and every one of these theories is debunked. Look, there's no, there's no highlights. There's no shadows. Um, there's, there's nothing, um, even when you do a test called paralysis mass spectroscopy, you could discern what uh, pigments were there and the chemical composition of those pigments, not a single particle was found. It's certainly not a painting. Their conclusions was that it's not human artwork. They didn't tell us what it is. They told us what it's not. And since all of these naturalistic attempts have failed, it leaves room, of course, for the Christian view that the shroud image is nothing other than the natural effect of a supernatural event, Amen. namely the resurrection. At least that's my position. It's not a dogma of the Catholic Church, but I think at least it holds water. It, it makes best, it best accommodates the data that we all observe. That's our starting point. And that should be really important to say, um, you know, everybody agrees that it has these qualities. Now the question is, accommodate them, explain them. And to date, we have not done so. Yes, for sure. And one thing that, you know, just really struck me is and you can correct me if this is not a proper articulation of what's the understanding of it is and if what i've been told or what my understanding is that the image from uh, kind of our position from the christian position is that the image was created by this credible light and that that light that is almost like a a nuclear blast going off onto the shroud and it just superimposing the image on in a way that is just Un unattainable, especially any time before today, 
um, that that was explained by our the, our Lord resurrecting from the dead. How how what how would you articulate the explanation mm-hmm. from a Christian perspective? The uh, what the shroud is. Sure, I think that it, what you say is right. When you look at the physics of it, um, the image, there are certain qualities about it that have led scientists. And I'm not a scientist, but I, I was taught by a certain physicist named Paolo di Lazzaro in, in Rome. And he spent five years with precisely this experiment, assuming that it is light. Well, let's play with the variables of light, you know, the, the, the frequency, the amplitude, the duration of exposure. He finally settled on UV laser excimer light, and he was able to caramelize um, some linen after a very many attempts, it was frustrating at first because he would either carbonize the material altogether or he would get no coloration at all. Um, but he finally found that sweet spot and was able to determine the amount of energy that is required to colorize a cloth of this size. And he found that to be 34,000 billion watts. That's the amount of energy that would be, would be needed to colorize a cloth of this size. And so I know that's an astronomical number, but you have to keep in mind that if that amount of energy were unleashed upon the, the a flimsy little linen for any length of time, it would not only carbonize the entire thing, it would leave a crater the size of Hiroshima or Nagasaki there in wow. Jerusalem, which evidently we don't have. And so he, what is posited is that this, this large amount of energy is released in a fraction of a fraction of a second, or more precisely, 40 billionths of a second. Wow. Again, these are the scientists who are trying to explain empirically what might, what, what, what light might um, bring about in effect like we have. We've been unable, like I say, despite all of our efforts and all of our time, um, it, to recreate this artificially, especially at a microscopic level. So we are miles away, I think, from reproducing this in a laboratory somewhere. Um, and so that we can only kind of scratch our heads and, and uh, imagine what it might be. There are two main theories. One, as you say, is some sort of light, some sort of energy, radiance energy has emanated out of the body. The second is that the body became mechanically transparent and that in that moment created a vacuum such that the cloth was kind of sucked in towards that space where the, that the body once occupied. And when the cloth passed through what, where the body was, it left a trace of its image. Again, these are simply um, postulates, hypotheses that have been placed on the table. Um, I guess we'll have to do another resurrection in a laboratory to figure out which one is the best, which, and, unless you want to volunteer, I'm not sure we're going to get that anytime soon. Well, I mean, we're, today we're celebrating the feast of uh, St. Vincent Ferrer, and he yes, uh, resurrected sir. many people, so maybe we'll have to uh, yeah. get uh, pray <laughs> to St. Vincent Ferrer to test that theory. Uh, but uh, today, you know, we're getting up to, today's Spy Wednesday, tomorrow we enter into the Triduum. What do we learn about the passion of our Lord by looking at the Shroud? Wow. I just, I, I want to answer that question, but I have to uh, jump in there to say, be, be careful to distinguish a reanimation from a re, from a right, resurrection. Right. That's true. Right. Cause sometimes Lazarus was uh, resuscitated, didn't necessarily mean a passage into glory. He would die again. And I imagine that other saints did something similar, but Jesus passed from this state into a glorious divinized state. And that's radically distinct. Okay, so what can we look to, to the Shroud to guide our meditation of the Passion? Gosh, there's so many elements, but I imagine we have time for, for just a few, so I'll go to my favorite. Um, the Crown of Thorns. 
The crown of thorns to me is oh, just a treasure, treasure trove of spiritual richness. And um, it's hard to convey. When I was a kid, I would look to the cross and I, all I could, knew how to say was, ouch. You know, that was the extent of my spirituality with regard to the crown. Um, but I think it's much deeper than that. Sure, uh, to look to the shroud, you can understand, for example, that there are 30 to 50 puncture wounds. It's not a hel- it's not a ring around the ears, not a wreath. It's a it's a helmet. It's a cap of thorns. And the, the, the thorns are three quarters of an inch long. They press through the skin all the way to the bony plate below. It's horrendous as far as the physical sufferings, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. We really need to probe the scriptures to understand what this means. And there, for example, you'll see that in Genesis, there were no thorns, not in that garden paradise, right? Instead, it's when Adam and Eve sinned that the Lord God says to Adam, because you've listened to your wife and eaten of the forbidden fruit of which I told you thou shall not eat of it, uh, cursed be the ground because of you. There's a cosmic curse upon all the earth because of sin. It takes this shape, thorns and thistles, says God, will come out of the earth and only by the sweat of your brow shall you have food to eat. There's a deep symbolism here that thorns and thistles refer to sin. Jesus knew that in Matthew 7, he would use that same imagery, thorns and thistles. He knew that thorns meant sin. He knew that he would be crowned with them. He was saying without even opening his mouth to my mind, just by wearing a crown of thorns, I am the sin bearer. I bear the sins of the world. And that's what's really happening there on Good Friday. It is good because he is rising victorious after he's delivered into death. This is the effect of sin. Jesus takes all of that upon himself. He concert, That's the kingship that is on display. He says to the enemies of God, give me your best shot. You know, plummet me into the land of the dead. But when out of that darkness I shine with new light, know this, I'm, I'm victorious. Amen. God, you got nothing. Amen, Father. If you can stay with us in the next hour, then we will explore some of the other wounds like the scourging. How about the holy shoulder wound of Christ? If you can stay with us, Father, we'll have that discussion the other side of this break. And that's going to do it for the first hour of Catholic Drive Time. If you can stay with us, then we'll see you on the other side. If not, see you back 6 a.m. Central Time tomorrow morning on Catholic Drive Time. I would always hear from uh, different people at non-Catholic churches that Catholics were going to hell or that they really didn't know who the Lord was. The Catholic Church is not all what people say it is. I mean, it's completely different. There's so many stereotypes. It's very possible to know the Lord, and it's very possible to have a relationship with God in the Catholic Church. I believe I was born into the Catholic Church, and that's where I belong. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, visit catholicscomehome.org. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Because Jesus said in Matthew 23 that no one should be called rabbi, father, or teacher, I'm sure you would never call one of your teachers teacher, would you? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, a Catholic no-no, calling a priest father. Well, what about Paul calling Timothy, Titus, and Onesimus his sons? No doubt his spiritual sons, but is it not proper for a spiritual son to call his spiritual father father? This reverential title should never have generated such a big point of contention. 
Revelation. Secondly, in the New Testament, in Acts 7 and Romans 9, we see the term father being used referring to Abraham and some of our great patriarchs. And my take, isn't context everything? When Jesus is speaking to the multitudes, it's oftentimes in the language and style of hyperbole. His discourse was not focused on titles or ecclesiastical guidelines. Jesus was once again warning against giving honor where honor is not due. Next time you see your pastor, just say, hey, preacher, that just seems so lacking. Hi, this is Dr. David Anders from EWTN's Call to Communion. I believe that the ministry of Catholic Radio is one of the greatest tools we have in the church for evangelism today. I hear from people all over the world on a daily basis who have encountered Christ in the Catholic Church for the first time by listening to Catholic Radio. Please support the ministry of Catholic Radio today. Support Guadalupe Radio Network. Charity. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Here at KSHJ, 1430 AM, Houston, Texas, we don't mess with the truth. We hear it, live it, and love it. Having a blessed spy Wednesday, recognizing the day that Satan entered into Judas and he made the decision to betray Christ, which would come to fruition tomorrow on Holy Thursday, on Maundy Thursday. Very, very good things to think about. On the last segment we are talking about the crown of thorns crown of thorns is such a such a meditation Uh, joining us right now is father andrew dalton he's an expert on the shroud of turin and we're talking about how the shroud of turin can be used as a means of meditation on uh, our sins on the passion of our lord especially for this holy holy triduum the most holy time of year, the part of the year that is unlike any other time of the year. And, you know, Father, you were talking about the, the crowning of thorns. And when you were, I was, there's one thing that I always think about. There's two meditations that I personally have whenever I think about the, the, the crowning of thorns. Every single one of the wounds of Christ, I kind of try to meditate upon different aspects of the of vices, and the as to the crowning of thorns, I think of the those thorns piercing the skull and piercing the brain of our Lord. And I use that as a as a meditation to think the suffering of our Lord's head being pierced in that way is due to my sins against thoughts. And when every time I, I think bad things, whatever I dwell on in bad things and I wish bad things upon people. Any of the sins that come to my mind, I consider that a, a wound that I give to our Lord by the crowning of thorns. And then that blood that, that must have ran down his face. I think about how after a boxer gets hit in the head, a cut comes up and it drips into his eyes and then he's not able to see. And I think about how the blood that flowed into our Lord's eyes and probably blinded him is, is, is a suffering due to the failure of custody of the eyes. And I try to think about those kind of things. Uh, what do you think about that idea, Father? 
I think that's a very pious reflection that really does land well in the tradition of the church. Um, of course, it's not always easy to see like a one-to-one, -one, oh, this particular sin brought about that particular suffering. But your intuition is right. It's in the catechism. You know, it wasn't the Roman soldiers who crucified him is so much as every sinner. And that's what Jesus, that's the real cause at the end of the day, ultimately speaking, not pretending that the Romans didn't have their, their role to play. They did. They did, of course. But my, but your intuition is right. It reminds me of Rembrandt who paints himself as crucifying the Lord or Mel Gibson in, in his fashion. He puts the, the nail in his hand, um, as he films the, the, the scene of the crucifixion. That's, right. that's us. That's, we did that. We did that. And this is what sin does. It disfigures the beautiful humanity of Christ. It disfigures our own humanity. And so that's a that's an incentive to stay away from sin. It's not, it's ugly. This is the one who loved us the most. This is the one who thought um, pure and holy thoughts towards us. How could we possibly treat him with disdain? Absolutely. Now, about the, the shroud, one thing that I have recently been thinking about is the holy shoulder wound of Christ. And I was thinking mm. about that because I was carrying a, I was going, we were going on procession recently and I was helping carry the statue and oh my goodness, it was very, very painful. I was, I was surprised by how painful it was and we were only carrying it for like an hour and there were about eight of us carrying the statue and we were like, St. Simon of Serene, pray for us because this is so <laughs> painful. Uh, what was the shoulder wound like according to the shroud and what can we learn from it? It's remarkable, and we see that there's excoriations on the right shoulder and then on the left shoulder blade a little further down and closer to the spine. And so it corresponds with what we read about in the first century literature, how the criminal was made to carry his patibulum, that is to say, the horizontal beam. This would have weighed something like 100 pounds, yeah. give or take 25 pounds. And I don't know if you've ever done the experiment. To go any length of time but keep in mind this is after the scourging this is after all of those blows to the face already he's already debilitated do you know that you mentioned simon of cyrene he was enlisted to carry the cross precisely because these roman soldiers saw this guy's not going to make it he's done he's done and so um jesus walks in front of simon so that this robust man is able to finish the job carrying the cross of course it's an image for us of our own discipleship of, so that we might carry our our crosses with our eyes fixed on Christ. But this is extremely heavy. It's men who work on the railroad and they carry beams for the railroad. They do it in exactly this way. A third of the weight is in front of them, two thirds of the weight behind them. But when they lose their balance, when they jostle their position, they fall. And this is what we see also on the shroud. There's soil on the knees and on the nose, not just on the feet. Wow. And, and this tells us that Jesus fell to the ground, flat to his face, a hundred pounds come crashing down on a crown of thorns. Can you imagine what that is? Can you imagine, moreover, the love that got him up off the ground and back on his feet? That's, that's divine love right there. Wow. Oh, I mean, I can't even, that hurts just thinking about the fact that our Lord would have face planted into the ground that's oh my goodness especially with the crown of thorns on his head and oh my and goodness on his that, back of his neck that is horrible to think about uh, what about the scourging at the pillar we 
I know many times people think that this was a Jewish scourging, which means that there was a, a limit to amount of scourging that it was, but this was in fact a Roman scourging. Can you explain the difference and why this is so much more right. severe? It, it, you're exactly right. It, and according to the Old Testament, you're not to treat your brother like a beast. So you can never give him more than 40 lashes minus one. You can read about Paul who said five times I received the 39 lashes, right? But that is a Jewish flogging in a synagogue, nothing like a Roman scourging, which is carried out there, the Praetorium there in the the territory of Pontius Pilate. These are Roman soldiers. They don't care about a limit of 40 lashes. They, we have three times as many recorded on the shroud, at least if you take uh, the count from John Jackson, the, the Shroud of Turin Research Project, he thinks there are some 120 uh, lashes or scourge marks on the front, 240 on the back. Of course, if there are three lashes on one Roman flagrum, 360 marks equals 120 lashes. And those are just the ones we see on the front and the back. Perhaps there are areas on the side that we can't count. But I always assumed it was just the back. It's not. It's all over the body. Even in the pelvic region, those wounds are just as deep as everywhere else. We know there was no protective loincloth in the moment of scourging. He was utterly naked. And that, I think, too, is part of the sufferings. It's something we need to contemplate. Wow. Yeah, that is it is so tragic, especially, you know, we think about the scourging of our Lord and sometimes we overly sanitize it because many of our crucifixes, it just has the the five wounds, the nails and the, and the piercing of the side and they exclude everything else. And we don't realize the severity in which our Lord suffered. Uh, Father, what is some of the sufferings that the shroud reveals that most people don't realize is a suffering that our Lord endured? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I would point to the nail wound and its placement. We're used to seeing the nail in the the center of the palm, um, but that's just uh, not really tenable. You can't hold even half the weight of a human body if the nail were in the center of the palms because it's all soft tissue. There's no transversal support in that area. What the shroud shows is that it pierces through the median, precisely where two nerves pass, desta space in the wrist is where you find the median nerve and the ulnar nerve. And they're not just motor nerves that control the motion of the fingers. They are sense nerves that send shockwaves of pain through the central nervous system exploding in the brain for four and a half hours. I mean, can you imagine what that is? There were soldiers in World War II that didn't have morphine and they preferred to commit suicide, some of them, because they had an exposed median nerve. There's a reason we call this pain excruciating. I don't know if you pause to think about that word, but it comes from excruciatus. Cruz is the cross, right? It's, it's, this is a pain that is so unique, it gets its own word. This was engineered to be the sumum supplicium, the highest of all punishments, and the Romans were engineering it to bring about this kind of effect. Um, can you imagine rotating around a nine-inch nail with a square cross-section? going up and down from a lower position where you can breathe out, excuse me, where you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. In order to exhale, you need to press down on the nail in your feet, to pull and twist on the nails in your hands, to rise up, to let your intercostal muscles relax Mm. and therefore breathe. Jesus didn't just breathe, he spoke from the cross. 
he he prayed for us father forgive them they know not what they do it's likely that he repeated that as a refrain again and again he was saying this says saint luke can you imagine the the love behind such an act i wouldn't have uttered a single word but there is jesus uh pouring out his love for us hi father this is tito edwards i i'm curious as to the pollen that was found on the there was lots of pollen on there but i i particularly am interested in that the pollen that could only be found at that time in history in that particular area of the world could you explain uh, talk a little bit about that because to me that's even more evidence of of the true nature of the shroud Yes, you're absolutely right. And if you want to go into this, you need to see two um, people. So the first is Max Frey, uh, F-R-E-I, um, who did sticky samples um, long ago. And then more recently, Avinuam Danin, who passed away not so long ago. He's a botanist and expert on the flora in, uh, in and around Jerusalem. And he has a wonderful book on this because there are many pollen samples. Some samples are better than others. And certainly the ones from Fry are not as good as um the, the information that we have now in the more modern era but a we some have i'll point to the most significant so one species of plant is called the gundelia turneforzi okay and we have over a hundred i want to say it's like 120 or so of these pollen grains it's not one or two but these blossom in april and may in a circumference a, a, like let's say five kilometers to 20 kilometers around Jerusalem, and they're blossoming precisely this time of year. This is what we find on the Shroud. Uh, again, for those who would say that the Shroud is a fake fabricated in France in the Middle Ages, I want to know, you know, what is it doing with this pollen from Jerusalem? It, it reminds me much like the soil, by the way. I told you soil was on the tip of the nose. Correct. We know that we know that, that soil is uh, calcium carbonate with a touch of strontium. We know its, cal it, its structure its crystalline structure to be travertine aragonite. It's an extremely rare crystalline structure, and yet it matches the grottos of Jerusalem, the soil there, like a fingerprint, says a geologist. So these are the kinds of things that I think really point to um, a, a way to debunk that claim that the shroud is a medieval fake, and in fact, the authentic burial shroud of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, thank you very much, Father, for all this information. Uh, definitely check out uh, all the most tons of information out there on the Shroud. Father, where can people keep in touch with you? Yeah, check out OthoniaInternational.org. That's, that's where I teach. There's a diploma, a postgraduate certificate in Shroud Studies. If you want to go deeper, that's where you need to go. Even if you don't have the time to take the exams, you can at least audit the class. It gives you all the access to all the video lessons from experts from each area. That's where you really need to go to go deeper. Uh, thank you very much, Father. Can you leave us with your blessing? Absolutely. Um, Lord Jesus, you told us that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst, and we happily call upon your holy name. And we ask your priestly blessing in this holy time upon all those who are listening. May they grow in faith, hope, and love, be protected from all evil, and be brought to everlasting life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you very Thank much, you. Father. God bless Amen. you. God love you. Have a blessed Triduum. And that's going to do it for this segment. Remember, today or Friday, this Friday is the last day to register for the 2023 Fishers of Men Benefit Dinner in South and Central Texas. Go to grnonline.com and contact Sean Rice. 
You can reach out to him. Monsignor Charles Pope will be the speaker, and the Sisters of St. John Bosco will be there being the honorees. So make sure you check that out. Last day to register, Friday, April 7th. Contact Sean Rice for the GRNOnline.com. And now we're going to our game show. Call in 877-757-9424. Today's the day we draw prizes, so call in. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We're currently cruising at 39,000 feet. We'll turn that seatbelt sign off for you and let you move about the cabin. Looks like we're about two hours and ten minutes from landing. Plenty of time for you to share your Catholic faith with one another. Wouldn't it be great if everyone eagerly shared their faith? Why not start today? A friendly suggestion from Guadalupe Radio Network. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. Have you ever heard someone say, I want a religion that is not so dogmatic? Well, G.K. Chesterton says a religion that is not dogmatic is not a religion. A religion means something that commits a man to some doctrine about the universe. Anyone who believes anything is dogmatic. In fact, Chesterton says a teacher who is not dogmatic is not teaching anything. And if you think about it, a doctor who's not dogmatic is not who you want prescribing medicine or performing surgery. An auto mechanic who's not dogmatic is not going to be able to fix your carburetor. We want professionals to have specific training, but specific training means embracing very specific ideas. And yet we want a religion that is not dogmatic, as if standing before God is less important than repairing our car. Want more than a minute? Visit Chesterton.org. Hey, Donnie, when we see Christ on the cross, what do we call that? A crucifix. And who said, preach Christ and Him crucified? Then call. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Welcome to another round of fear and trembling. <laughs> the Catholic Trivia Game Show that helps you work out your salvation by the seat of your pants. It's a 50-50 chance and prizes are involved. Avoid the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Call now to take your shot. 877-757-9424. 877-757-9424. That's the number to call to be part of our game show, Fear and Trembling, where we give out prizes and you could win. 877-757-9424. That's the number to call. And you could be our contestant. And today, because starting tomorrow, we are not going to have a second hour because we're starting the Holy Triduum. So we're going to be having Holy Triduum-related programming beginning, beginning in the 7 o'clock hour Central Time starting tomorrow, which means today is the day when we draw prizes. So you have an excellent opportunity to be the winner. That's a possibly three and nine chance of winning uh maybe at worst one in nine chance of winning that is those are really really good odds you don't get those odds in the lottery you don't get those odds in anything else so make sure you call in 877-757-9424 877-757-9424 
9424. You could be our contestant. Just call in. And you may be thinking, okay, well, this is my first time listening. I have no idea how to play this game. What are you talking about? Well, we're doing a Catholic trivia game, Fear and Trembling, where I have three Catholic trivia questions in front of me. Now, these Catholic trivia questions, I'm not going to ask you the questions. I'm going to ask Tito the questions, and Tito's going to give me an answer, and it's going to be your job to tell me whether or not he's right or whether or not he's wrong. Those are, it's your job to tell me. That means you have a 50-50 chance of getting it right. And every right answer goes into the coffee cup of divine providence to win this week's prize. Tito, what could they win? Thank you for asking. The Fear and Trembling prize for this week is a six-month subscription to the Wonderlust, Wonderlust Catholic. Valued at $36 from Annunciation Designs. Annunciation Designs offers practical products to help your family call to mind the sacred in the midst of the ordinary. Their monthly snail subscription, The Wonderless Catholic, takes readers on a pilgrimage to a Catholic treasure right from their home. Find out more at AnnunciationDesigns.com. That is AnnunciationDesigns.com. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, AnnunciationDesigns.com, for your generous donation. We appreciate uh, that being uh, being a sponsor of our show today. And that number to call, 877-757-9424. Make sure you put that number on speed dial. You can always go to our website, grnonline.com forward slash CDT. There you can find all the information about how to play the game, the phone number, everything's listed there. Because if you're not the contestant today, well, starting next week, we have a brand new game show with brand new prizes, and you're going to want to call in. So make sure you write that number down, and you can go to grnonline.com forward slash CDT in order to find out more information and be able to write that number down and call in for the game show. It'll be a great time. So that's going to do it. We, good morning to you, Lee. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Praise be to God. Lee, where are you calling from? I'm from Alabama. Alabama. Praise be to God. We have an Alabama caller on the line. That's a, a rare treat for us. We we love our Alabama listeners, but they don't call very often, not at all. Uh, they need to. Exactly, exactly. There you go. You're being called out. Lee just told you, uh, everybody in Alabama, y'all got to pick up the phone and y'all got to start dialing in. We love to hear it. But good morning to you, Lee. How is your uh, Passion Week going, or how is the Holy Week going, rather? Going good, going good. I've got I've got my times at church scheduled, and we're off Friday. I work for a Christian company, so ah, praise be to God. I know, isn't it wonderful? It is. It is. It's such a blessing to get off a uh, Good Friday. I have a couple friends who have to work that day, and they are uh, using their vacation days to make sure that they're not working on Good Friday. And I'm like, you guys rock. I don't have to do that because GRN gives us a day off, so praise be to God. But you guys rock for taking that day off. You guys rock. But uh, how is the? what kind of Lenten practices did you do this year, and did you, did you survive it? So I, I, I actually just sent you an email. I joined your group. Um, I heard about it the very last, I heard about it the day that you started it and I have enjoyed it a lot. Uh, didn't have the book, so that took a hot minute to get to me. Um, but, um, it, it went, it went okay. It would have been better if I would have known it in advance. Mm-hmm. So, 
I'm hopeful for the next one you do. Yeah. Amen. Praise be to God. We're glad to have you here. So Lee is, in fact, a CDT insider. So praise be to God. You, it is a we're good. It's a, it's good that you are there. We enjoy having you. Uh, are you ready to play the game? Yes. Well, let's do it. All righty. The first question goes to Tito. Surprising, right? Everybody's like, "What?" I thought it was going to go to somebody else. No, nope. It's going to Tito. Tito, the question on the board: What is the origin of the word Christmas? The origin of the word Christmas. I love the English language, our, our patrimony from the English church as well. It, it's simple, but it's beautiful. It's the Mass of Christ. What? Yep, the Mass of Christ. Try telling that to your Protestant buddies. That seems a little on the nose, I would say. Yeah, hmm. obvious logic. Okay, okay, if you say so. Uh, Lee, the question on the board is, what is the origin of the word Christmas? And Tito seems to think that the origin of the word Christmas is the Mass of Christ. Oh, 15 seconds of the clock, Lee, what say you? I'm going to say yes. She's going to say yes, she says. Praise be to God, Lee. You got it. Easy peasy. Yeah, just like all the other ones. Like you have uh, Michaelmas, which is the, the Mass of St. Michael. And you have a bunch of others that are just escaping my mind at the moment, but that's the one that popped in my head. That's right. But yes, that is correct. It is. Uh, we're very creative with our words. We just literally <laughs> add the word uh, Christ and Mass, and we smash it together, and like it's Christmas. There you go. There you go. Candlemas. Are you? Uh, there you go. Yeah. Candlemas. There you go. Candlemas is candle mass. The mass where you bless the candles. Yeah. Very very creative. Uh, ready? Are you ready for number two, Lee? Yes. Then let's do it. Let's do it. This question, Tito, are you ready? I'm ready. You're ready. The question on the board is, when does the obligation of Holy Communion begin for children? The obligation for Holy Communion begins at the age of reason, and that it would be seven years of age. Seven years of age, you're saying? Yes, seven years of age. Okay. Yep. All right. (laughs) All right. Lee, the question on the board is, when does the obligation of Holy Communion begin for children? Well, Tito seems to think the answer is when they come to the use of reason. What say you, Lee? 15 seconds on the clock. When does the obligation of Holy Communion begin for children? When they come to the use of reason is Tito's answer. Is he right? Is he wrong? Is he telling the truth? Is he being false? What say you, Lee? I believe he's correct. She says she believes you are correct. Way to go, Lee. Praise be to God. Lee wow. is hustling us. She she knows. She knows. <laughs> She's a expert well, I, theologian. I was thinking I'm it was eight. Yeah, I was thinking it was six years, but then I was I've, I've been to a couple of the first communion, so well, I couldn't remember exactly. The, the technical answer is when they u- they come to the use of reason. In America, they kind of say, okay, that's probably like seven or eight, but there's not really a like a, a real rule. So if a kid is, is using the use of reason at six, well, then he's at the age of reason. Uh, God doesn't, doesn't have a cutoff date where he's like, oh, you're eight. Now you have the use of reason. Uh, it's it's different for everybody. We kind of just ballpark it seven or eight. Yeah. But, uh, and if you're in okay. a blue part of the political spectrum, it's about 30, 35. <laughs> All right. Let's go into question number three. Uh, Lee from Alabama. Are you ready? 
I am. Let's do it. The question on the board, what is the term for the long silk cloth used by the priest when carrying the Blessed Sacrament and giving benediction? Wow. Uh, I, I should know this being an acolyte. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, my guess is sackcloth. Oh, sackcloth. You're saying... Sackcloth. You're saying symbolically they call it a sackcloth. Yes. Oh, wow. You know, that's very profound. Yes, That's very you. profound. Wow. All right, Lee. The question on the board is, what is the term for the long silk cloth used by the priest when carrying the Blessed Sacrament and giving benediction? Tito seems to think it's a sackcloth, and that's what they call it. Very symbolic right there. Uh, Lee, 15 seconds of the clock. What say you? Ooh. I'm going to say no. She's going to say no. She doesn't trust you. Way to go, Lee. Good job. Wow. Exactly. Could not confuse you. Could not trick you. You nailed it. The correct answer is a humoral veil. A humoral veil is the correct title for that cloth. It's a silk cloth mm -hmm. that the priest wears when he's carrying the Blessed Sacrament and giving benediction. So way to go. Uh, way to go, Lee. Hey, don't play that. We're not in. We're still in the season of Lent. Am I wrong? Can't, can't play that. But uh, that's going to do it, Lee. We are going to stay on the line. Let's see if you are the winner. We're going to draw out a name from the Coffee Cup of Divine Providence. Uh, Tito is shaking up the Coffee Cup of Divine Providence as we speak. And you have a great opportunity to win. That's a three and nine chance because you got a three for Lee. You got all three correct, and so that's a three and nine chance. That's like what one third? Is that right? I'm one trying third. to trying to do math in my head. Uh, it's a rule: never do math on air. But uh, here we are <laughs> doing it. But here we go. He's drawing out his name, and the winner is uh, Miss Lee Owens. There you go, oh, Lee. You wow. won. Praise be to God. Lee from Alabama, you are, in fact, the winner. Praise be to God. And there we go. Lee, stay on the line with us. We make sure we get your contact information so that way we can send you the prize. Uh, praise be to God, Lee. Have a blessed Triduum. Thank you, and peace be with you. Peace be with you, and also with you. Or with your spirit. There we go. Reverting back. Ecum Spiritu Tuo. There we go. I'm going to put you on hold, Lee. Uh, stay on the line. Tito's going to get your contact information. Uh, but first, Tito, you had to, uh, can you put the back on zero, the music, back on zero. All right. And that's going to do it for this hour. Stay with us, and you can hop on our social media feeds, and we can interact with you directly after this short break, or see you back 6 a.m. Central tomorrow morning. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Corpus Christi, today we celebrate Wednesday of Holy Week or Spy Wednesday. 
We offer this holy sacrifice of the Mass for all those listening in the Guadalupe Radio Network and all of our online viewers. Attende Domine, et miserere, qui a peccavimus tibi, King High Exalted, all the world's Redeemer, to thee thy children lift their eyes with weeping, Christ, we implore Thee, hear our supplication. Attende Domine, et miserere, quia peccavimus tibi. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Let us pray. O God, who willed your Son to submit for our sake to the yoke of the cross, so that you might drive from us the power of the enemy, grant us, your servants, to attain the grace of the resurrection through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord God has given me a well-trained tongue, that I might know how to speak to the weary, a word that will rouse them. Morning after morning he opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. He is near who upholds my right. If anyone wishes to oppose me, let us appear together. Who disputes my right? Let him confront me. See, the Lord God is my help. Who will prove me wrong? The word of the Lord. Lord, in your great love, answer me. For your sake I bear insult, and shame covers my face. I have become an outcast to my brothers, a stranger to my mother's sons. 
because zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who blaspheme you fall upon me. Lord, in your great love, answer me. Insult has broken my heart, and I am weak. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For consolers, not one could I find. Rather, they put gall in my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Lord, in your great love, answer me. I will praise the name of God in song, and I will glorify him with thanksgiving. See, you lowly ones, and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the poor, and his own who are in bonds he spurns not. In your great love, answer me. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. Hail to you, our King. You alone are compassionate with our errors. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. One of the twelve, who is called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that time on he looked for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Eleven Bread, the disciples approached Jesus and said, Where do you want us prepared for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time draws near. In your house I shall celebrate the Passover with my disciples. The disciples then did as Jesus had ordered and prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed at this, they began to say to him one after another, Surely it is not I, Lord. He said in reply, He who has dipped his hand into the dish with me is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas, his betrayer, said in reply, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. He answered, You have said so. The Gospel of the Lord. Archbishop Fulton Sheen said in his book, A Priest is Not His Own, that Jesus gazes upon priests the same way he gazed upon St. Peter immediately after he had betrayed him. Think about that. Ordinarily, how Christ looks at the church is the way that Jesus looked at Peter right after he had said, I do not know him. That is to say that every day 
We celebrate the fact that Jesus saves the church, saves his people from infidelity, from betrayal, from idolatry, from the spirit of infidelity. Jesus constantly saves us from ourselves. But today in particular, the holiest week of the year on this, we call it Spy Wednesday because the readings are always about Judas betraying Jesus. We celebrate in particular the fact that Jesus sees our capacity for sin and still chooses to redeem us. He sees the church as it is. And he still says to his beloved bride, I will die for you. I will give my life for you. The, the words in Latin, when you have the mass in Latin, it's a lot, very, it's very, uh, it's very poignant. Uh, Tradere means to hand over. It says Jesus handed himself over in the form of bread. Well, he handed himself over to the, the soldiers for salvation, but he also hands himself over on a daily basis here at the altar. He hands himself over to sinful men every day in the Eucharistic mystery. And this is what love really is. And so when in the middle of Holy Week or the beginning of the Holy Week, I don't, you probably have this experience, I know I have, where all this stuff starts to go wrong, where all these things, they seem a little bit bigger. They start to feel like betrayal like infidelity, like, and, and they start to multiply around Holy Week. And I remember the first time this happened, how I was just shocked. But the truth is, if you draw near to Jesus, you draw near to him who was betrayed for our sins. And you can see that if you want to follow Christ, you have to be purified. And that's true of the whole church. The whole church has to be purified by trial. It has to undergo this kind of process of purification. In order for us to celebrate the resurrection, we have to experience the crucifixion. No pain, no gain, no gall, no glory. You have to lift weights if you're going to be strong. You can't grow in muscle strength if you don't first rip the muscles. And that is exactly what happens on in Holy Week. So we shouldn't be surprised when that does happen. We shouldn't be afraid. Calmly accept with resignation, with love, all of the funny, strange trials that happen to you. And set your face like flint, like the first reading says, set your face like flint toward the Father in Christ. Because this is the real meaning of meekness. Meekness means that you don't need to respond to evil, that you know who you belong to, you know who is victorious in the end, you know that God is still leading everything. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church, and he is governing it, he's leading it, he hasn't abandoned it, he is guiding it. But today in particular, the church is purified and we sit with Jesus. And so in the spirit of our Blessed Mother Mary, let us sit with Jesus and contemplate Jesus betrayed. Let us ask our Blessed Mother for this gift of faithfulness in this time 
the times that we live in that are evil. And ask our Blessed Mother to pray for us that like her, we may remain faithful in the time of test and trial. May you all have a very holy, holy week. Let us bring our petitions to the Lord. We pray for the Holy Church of God, that purified of its sins and undergoing trial and persecution, it may prove faithful and holy as Jesus is holy. For this we pray to the Lord. We pray for our Holy Father, O bishops and priests, that they may serve as Jesus serves. For this we pray to the Lord. We pray for our government leaders that they may not obstruct Christ. We pray for an end to abortion, same-sex unions, gender confusion, and human trafficking. We pray to the Lord. We pray for the sick, the suffering, the poor, the abandoned, for all the persecuted, for all those who have been betrayed. We pray to the Lord. We pray for all of our beloved dead, that they may enter the Father's eternal glory. We pray to the Lord. Eternal and blessed Father, we ask you to hear us, for we make these and all our petitions in the holy name of Jesus Christ and through the powerful intercession of our Mother Mary as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Jesus, how hast thou offended that man to judge thee hath in hate pretended by foes derided, by thine own rejected, O most afflicted. Who was the guilty who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucify thee. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and good of all his holy church. Receive, O Lord, we pray, the offerings made here, and graciously grant that celebrating your son's passion and mystery we may experience the grace of its effects through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. 
for the days of his saving passion and glorious resurrection are approaching, by which the pride of the ancient foe is vanquished and the mystery of our redemption in Christ is celebrated. Through him the host of angels adores your majesty and rejoices in your presence forever. May our voices, we pray, join with theirs in one chorus of exultant praise as we acclaim. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaho, Plane Suncelia Terra, Gloria Tua, Osanna in excelsis, Benedictus, Qui venit in nomine Domini, Osanna in excelsis. You are indeed holy, O Lord, and all you have created rightly gives you praise. For through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, you give life to all things and make them holy, and you never cease to gather a people to yourself, so that from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. Therefore, O Lord, we humbly implore you, by the same Spirit graciously make holy these gifts we have brought to you for consecration, that they may become the body and blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at whose command we celebrate these mysteries. For on the night he was betrayed, he himself took bread, and giving you thanks, he said the blessing, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and giving you thanks, he said the blessing, and gave the chalice to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The mystery of faith, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Therefore, O Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the saving passion of your Son, his wondrous resurrection and ascension into heaven, and as we look forward to his second coming, we offer you in thanksgiving this holy and living sacrifice. Look, we pray upon the oblation of your church and recognizing the sacrificial victim by whose death you will to reconcile us to yourself. Grant that we who are nourished by the body and blood of your Son and filled with his Holy Spirit may become one body, one spirit in Christ. May he make of us an eternal offering to you so that we may obtain an inheritance with your elect especially with the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, blessed Joseph, her spouse, with your blessed apostles and glorious martyrs, 
and with all the saints on whose constant intercession in your presence we rely for unfailing help. May this sacrifice of our reconciliation, we pray, O Lord, advance the peace and salvation of all the world. Be pleased to confirm in faith and charity your pilgrim church on earth, with your servant, Francis our Pope, Michael our Bishop, the Order of Bishops, all the clergy, and the entire people you have gained for your own. Listen graciously to the prayers of this family, whom you have summoned before you in your compassion, O merciful Father. Gather to yourself all your children scattered throughout the world. Remember your servants whom you called from this world to yourself. Grant that they who are united with your son in a death like his may also be one with him in his resurrection, when from the earth he will raise up in the flesh those who have died and transform our lowly body after the pattern of his own glorious body. To our departed brothers and sisters too, and to all who are pleasing to you after passing from this life, give kind admittance to your kingdom. There we hope to enjoy forever the fullness of your glory, when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. For seeing you, our God as you are, we shall be like you for all the ages and praise you without end. Through Christ our Lord, through whom you bestow on the world all that is good. Row him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. Proceptis salutaribus moniti et divin institutioni formati, audehimus dicere, Pater noster, qui es in celis, Sanctifice tuum nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, secut in celo et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, secut et nos dimitimus, Debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amahalo. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days. By the help of your mercy, we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccata mundi, Miserere nobis, Agnus Dei, qui tuis peccata mundi, Miserere nobis, Agnus Dei, qui tuis peccata mundi, Dona nobis pacem. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, 
but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Communion Antiphon, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. An act of spiritual communion. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there, and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Pange lingua gloriosi, corporis misterigu, sanguinisque preziosi, Quemen mundi pretsigum, fructus ventris generosi, rex Of the glorious body telling, oh, my tongue its mystery singing, and the blood or price excelling, which the world's eternal king, in a noble womb once dwelling, shed for this world's ransoming, given for us, for us descending, of a virgin to proceed, man with man in converse blending, scattered he the gospel seeking, till his sojourn drew to ending, which he closed in wondrous deed. Amen. Let us pray. And thou, Almighty God, with the firm conviction that through your Son's death and time, to which he, the revered mysteries bear witness, we may be assured of perpetual life through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. Bow down for the blessing. Grant your faithful, O Lord, we pray, to partake unceasingly of the Paschal Mysteries and to await with longing the gifts to come, that persevering in the sacraments of their rebirth, they may be led by Lenten works to newness of life, through Christ our Lord. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in the peace of Christ.
Oh, sacred heart surrounded by crown of piercing thorn. Oh, bleeding head so wounded, reviled and put to scorn. Death The Prayer to St. Michael St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Prayer of Deliverance Almighty God and Father, we beg thee through the intercession and help of the Archangels St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Transmitting the treasures of our Catholic faith to your radio every day. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. This is Dr. Ken Buckle from Grazia 